Hello, my name is Claire, and I will be having a conversation with Thomas Page McBee for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is uh, Tuesday, November 12th, 2019, and this is being recorded at the New York Public Library Manhattan branch. Hi. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks for doing this. Of course, yeah. Um, let's begin with your name, age, and where you were born. Mm -hmm. uh, so my name is Thomas Pinter B. It's uh, <laughs> my full name. Um, Thirty-seven. Yes. Not the age where I don't know how old I am anymore. Um, I'm 37, and I was born in Hickory, North Carolina. And did you grow up in Hickory? No. I, uh, my family moved when I was four to Raleigh, North Carolina. And then pretty soon after that, uh, we moved to uh, the Pittsburgh area of Pennsylvania. And that's where I spent most of my, it's my entire youth until I was 18. Okay. What was um, what was Pittsburgh like in the in the eighties, nineties? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was like yeah, I guess mid to late eighties and, and most of the nineties I was there. It was like an interesting place to be from. Like my my mom's whole family's from Central Pennsylvania, so <clears throat> in some ways, like I think it felt kind of familiar to her, but also different, which she liked. Um, she always felt like there was a lot of culture in Pittsburgh um, compared to, you know, as a part of Mid-Sized City, which is actually true, but at that time, most people didn't know that. Like, it had a really great like, ballet company and theater, theater companies and symphony. All those things were really important to my mom. Um, and it was still, but the town itself, the city itself, was very much still recovering from all kinds of, like, industrial Midwest-type depression things that had happened after the class of industry. So it was sort of an interesting place because the, the Carnegie's had had such a huge impact on the area. So there were beautiful libraries and museums and um, a lot of philanthropy around arts and culture. But also at the same time, like there had been a lot of, you know, I guess what people would call like brain drain and people leaving. And I never questioned that I would leave Pittsburgh, you know, um, for that reason. Uh, and I think as a queer person, I mean, I was, a, I was out as queer my whole life. So, I mean, from the time in which a person can have a sexuality, you know, for me that was around 14. So I grew up aware of being, you know, different, um, and it didn't feel like a place at the time that I felt like I had a huge future, um, just because every queer person I knew left, you know? Although, actually, I did come back after college and I worked for a couple of years at the Andy Warhol Museum and really rediscovered Pittsburgh, and, you know, since then I've spent a lot of time going back there for various reasons, and it's, it's changed, but also I didn't know it as well as I thought I did as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there was a lot, there were a lot more resources and people and, and, and stuff going on than I really understood. Um, but actually, all through high school, I had all these friends at this, like, private high school that wasn't my high school, that was in Pittsburgh, that was much more progressive. So I actually grew up with, like, a lot of queer people around me, just at this totally different school that wasn't my school. So I spent all my time like taking the bus and then eventually taking a car that I could drive and, and hanging out with all these queer kids in this like cool progressive school that wasn't mine. 
you were in public high school. Yeah, I was in public high school, and and, and I was from right outside Pittsburgh, like a smaller town just down the river. So, um, so my town was like proximate, but definitely did not Pittsburgh itself. Even. So Pittsburgh was like the city to me, um, and then this this school had like just it felt like a very sophisticated uh, <laughs> perspective, which it kind of did actually. There were a lot of out, out gay kids there. I mean, this was the nineties; this was unusual. Um, so. I think early on I realized that there was like a lot more, there was a lot more than Pittsburgh itself and there was also a lot more even within the city, you know, um, and I really, I spent a lot of time also coming to New York uh, when I could, so that was, you know, that was cool. <laughs> yeah. What would um, gay teens do, mm-hmm. like, socially? Yeah. There was an all-ages club that we spent a lot of time going to, you know, it was very like that era, you know, called oh, Pegasus. 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 And it was in downtown Pittsburgh, which at the time was just like blown. It was like a, it, it was just like nothing was there. I mean, it was like a couple newsstands, and there was nothing in the downtown area. And then there was this gay club. And the gay club had like a cage, you know, where you could be underage and be in this like non, non-alcoholic non area, you know, <laughs> separate from the adults, I guess. Um, so, so, but it was cool because like really everyone went there. They went there and then everyone went to the piano bar. Um, which, you know, technically I think you probably had to be 21 to get into, but there was some permissiveness about that. And I've seen that movie, Small Town Gay Bar, and it kind of felt like that, you know? There was just a kind of... I mean, I really credit coming from there in the sense of, like, having a very intersectional experience of, of queerness. I was around, like, gay men who were, like, of a certain stripe and age, and lesbians of a certain stripe and age, and young people, and, you know, it was just... I, I don't know how many trans people I knew, um, or people who I understood were trans, but I think there there was some gender diversity. And it was just sort of like, there weren't very many of us, so we just all had to stick together kind of situation, you know? Yeah. Um, and I was a pretty masculine-looking kid, you know? So I, like, I fit in with the lesbians, and the gay men kind of felt like they understood me, and, you know, so there was, I don't know, I, I felt like I had an intergenerational experience, um, pretty young, of, like, what was possible, which I, which I really credit to Pittsburgh, because that was a very cool thing to, to experience, you know? Um, and then my high school friends and I would go to these different these different places, and then we also would go to like warehouse shows because that was big back then, and there are all these huge warehouse spaces that you could go to, and it was actually very cool music um, and raves, which were really big back then. And we would go to those, and so sort of like kind of off the grid stuff, and then these sort of sites of uh, public LGBTQ uh, experience that were actually accommodating for young people, and so that's that's kind of like the stuff we would do in groups, and then. I had a gay best friend, uh, my best friend growing up, he was a gay guy, and so we were often together, and, and he ended up getting really involved in hanging out with this, people from this, this school too, so like we went to the same high school, but we spent all of our time at this other high school, and um, so that was kind of nice to have like, kind of a partner in it. Cool. Um, were you uh, into writing in high school? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I started writing when I was uh, nine. Because, yeah, because I had a, a teacher who was, like, that was sort of her whole um, thing. Like, she was, she wanted us to write poetry, you know? And that was, like, for whatever reason. I actually never understood why that was so important to her, but she was very invested in that. And so um, so she would have us write poetry, and I really took to it. And it was, like, a challenging time in my life. I, uh, I came from a, a trauma background in my family, and that was sort of the period in which all was being exposed and so writing was like a great outlet for me and uh she was really like supportive of it and she had this whole story which i still 
I don't even want to know if it's true, but she said that <laughs> she had this daughter who she said was a soap star, soap opera star in New York. Uh, and if you had a poem she really loved, she would walk you down the hall to where the fax machine was and send the poem <laughs> by fax to Hillary, her daughter, uh, in New York City, the soap star. And it's like, now I'm thinking about it, and I've thought about it, obviously, since, and I'm like, was that really even happening? What did this woman make of all these poems she was getting from third graders? I mean, maybe it was really truly a thing that this, you know, maybe it was all true, I don't know, but it felt very special. <clears throat> and uh, so that's when I started writing, and... Um, I was lucky that my, my mom uh, really encouraged me to, to continue that. I think she saw that it was a creative outlet for me that was helpful, and I was a, a kid who was you know, different for many reasons and had you know a lot I was dealing with, so um, so I was lucky to have a lot of support. And then I also got really interested in film around the same time, like you know a few years later. So I, um, I was writing from nine on, and I sort of did a lot of like enrichment programs and that sort of thing, and like after school stuff. And... Um, and I went. I skipped a grade. I skipped uh, seventh grade, like the humanities side of seventh grade, and got to go to film school, um, like half the day every, you know, every day. And I like all through basically middle school and high school. So I graduated from film school when I was in high school, which was really cool. Um, and then in the summers, I would do a lot of like creative writing. Like, there was a free government. I mean, I didn't only do free things, but there was a like governor's school for the arts that was like open to anyone if you got in and went for five weeks and it was like everyone in anyone in Pennsylvania could apply so like I did like that sort of thing like summer enrichment with like other kids who were like weird and artistic and so I think something my mom did really well was kind of try to show me that there was a big world um, and try to connect me to people outside of you know this limited world I was in and I, I really internalized that but there was like that you have to like look outside your most immediate environment sometimes if you're not if you're not copacetic with, with the people around you. Um, so through the arts is where I was able to do that the most, I think. What were you making work about? Mm. What were your early films oh. or writing like? <laughs> I mean, obviously so embarrassing, but like... <laughs> um, well, I, did a lot of po I wrote poetry. I mean, that's what I like got to went to governor school for. They had it. It was like sectioned off. There's poetry and fiction. And there's 10, ten people in poetry, 10 people in fiction. Um, so I got into governor school for poetry, and I was really, like, committed to poetry. It was really, uh, I think that was, like, something that was very innate to me, and I really understood, kind of, the, like, that way of thinking. Um, I actually had to learn, I had to teach myself how to write prose in, in, um, undergrad. And I did that by, by taking my narrative poems and working with a fiction, um, like, a faculty advisor to just literally turn them into stories. So it's like we would sort of painstakingly for my thesis went through, I like collected all these poems I written that were narrative and, and turned them all into prose pieces. And then I ended up going to grad school for fiction based on that. And then I kind of had to learn how to write fiction. Just <laughs> um, sort of the story of my life. It's a lot of like trying, like wanting to write across formats because it's interesting and then kind of jumping in and being like, oh man, I got to figure out how to actually do this. Um, so, but I was doing journalism also in undergrad, so that, that helped. Um, and then in, in high school, yeah, I was, so I was writing poems. They were like, they were pretty like memoir-y, like sort of just things that I was dealing with or thinking about. Um, and then my films were like, I mean, I don't know. Like I like, I was very serious about it and I won a couple like children's competitions and that sort of thing. But in retrospect, it was like a lot of like feminist films about like the beauty myth and you know, like the stuff I was reading that I was like, yeah, you know? So I think I was very interested even in a young, as a young person in, um, 
gender, and you know, I, I had I knew my gender was different, and I felt a very strong allegiance to women, and I also felt very sort of aware that I wasn't, I don't know, I wasn't quite having the same experience as as the women in my life, but I understood the parallels between their experience and my experience, and being queer and masculine, I think also. It was an identity that that was that made some sort of sense. So, like, I think I don't know. In some ways, kind of oddly, actually having all of that support and like place to express myself, like maybe in a good way, allowed me to think a lot longer and a lot more deep, deeply about my gender and through through art and through creative process and through being around people who are different than me. But also, maybe in some ways, made it take longer for me to really understand that it wasn't just that I was like masculine and, and queer, but then I was actually a man, um, which was sort of, a, in a way, sort of surprising for me to, to realize that about myself, um, in part just because of being in these creative communities and, and having actually a lot of latitude for, for expression. It's a lot of way. Where did you go, where did you move to go to undergrad? Oh, Boston. And I went to Emerson College in Boston. Okay. Yeah. And that, I went to school for initially for writing and film, and then it was like, uh, it, it was too challenging to double major in those. And at the time, the school didn't have like a, I mean, now it seems obvious, but like a film writing. It was a professional school, but it didn't have like a, a way to write for film. It was just sort of like a directing kind of track or it was a writing track, so I so I stayed on the writing track. Um, and then I got invested in, in um, journalism kind of by accident. I like did an internship like in my, I think my freshman year at the like local all weekly. And, uh, I found a, you know, I sort of stumbled on, I was like doing like the listings or whatever. And somewhere, somehow I found out about this issue with the gay straight Alliance at uh, Boston university school. Um, and the chancellor of Boston university and the high school, this guy named uh, John Silver, he'd been, um, uh, blocking the school's ability to create gay straight alliances, or he 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 done something. He either undermined them or blocked them. Something had happened, and so initially I was supposed to write just a kind of a quick story. But then the editors were like, "Oh, this is like actually like, you, should, you need to write an investigative piece of journalism." And I had no idea how to do that, so they kind of like mentored me through, you know, in a very serious way. Like these people really knew journalism, so I kind of had this like everything else in my life a very on the ground kind of you know, training, like, like by fire or whatever, as I wrote this story that, in retrospect, again, it could have really blown back on this paper. Like, they could have been sued for, you know, if it had been done well, they could have been sued for libel or all kinds of things, but they really trusted me and, and helped me write that story, and then it was a cover story. Uh, yeah, which was really cool. So, so it's like, I think that really helped me cement my, I don't know, my interest in writing and in, in other forms, and um, it maybe gave me the confidence to say I want to learn to write prose in general, and, um, and then I got into fiction. And so, yeah, and, and Boston was a really interesting place, actually, uh, for queer life. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Say more. Say more. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, it's interesting because the first few years I was there, I, I didn't find anyone, and Emerson was not, there were a lot of gay men at Emerson, but there weren't um, people who were, I didn't know a lot of queer people outside of that experience, and uh, not a lot of people like me in general, um, though I now have, I, I've ended up having a lot of friends who went to school with me, but, you know, at the time I felt very different from the people I was around. Um, I was in the honors program there, which was just like this, like, I don't know, it was like a seminar that they did every semester, so, so we had a little co cohort that you did, like, humanities with, because I, I didn't want to be at a school that I didn't have humanities, and so that was the way that that happened there, and you got, like, a scholarship, and you worked as a cohort with these other people, and so I became very close to these 
people from actually all kinds of backgrounds. It was very cool. Um, but that was like, you know, Emerson's in the middle of Boston. There's no campus, really. So um, so in terms of campus life, there wasn't really any. So I didn't really feel like I found my place in Boston until I started working um, at this uh, queer coffee shop called Diesel Cafe, which is in Somerville. Uh, do you know it? I know. No. It's like, it was sort of a, so this was like 2000, you know, one to 2000, or 2000 until 2003-ish that I worked there. And it was just like a very, sort of the height of coffee shop culture. And uh, <laughs> and this was like in Somerville, which has become a very big, you know, cool place to live. But at the time, it was like Tufts was out there, but there wasn't really much else. Everything is in Boston was by where the colleges are, you know. So this was Tufts. It was on the red line, so it was kind of accessible, but it was like, you know, it was a bit of further sprawl than more central Boston. So, um, but I ended up really loving working there. And I think I had maybe moved there first. I can't remember if we, I moved in with like a few friends and I don't remember if we had found the place first or found the job first, but it all sort of lined up. And so I was living in that neighborhood and working in this coffee shop, which became a really big, um, like queer gathering place in Boston, particularly for people who were, um, you know, uh, it, it was more for like lesbians and allies than it was for, and maybe I would say queer people, queer identified people mm-hmm. of all genders, than like necessarily like, the gay man kind of scene, which was very different. Um, so I spent a lot of time like, you know, working at this place, but also like it was one of those places where it was like there's a huge social life attached to the cafe, and like there was a lot of like parties, and you know, and everybody who was queer hung out there, you know. So it was like a great way to meet people, and then there was like 30 coworkers I had. So it was barely much like I felt like suddenly in a really vibrant community after like a few years of feeling like where is the community? So that was really cool. And then I also went to like Man Ray a lot, which is the dance the dance place in Boston. I think it's still around. Uh, maybe I'm not sure, um, but I've seen it referenced in other people's um, work about that time. And you know, it was definitely like the LGBTQ place to go and dance be out all night and it felt like a really safe place for all kinds of different people um so yeah so that was my my sort of queer life in boston i think <laughs> might be missing something but that was that was the that was the most of it <laughs> yeah. um after that did you stay in boston after graduating no then i went back to pittsburgh okay. i didn't really know what i wanted to do exactly next and uh I had a, had a girlfriend at the time, and I think she also didn't really know. So we just decided, I said, you know, Pittsburgh could be kind of cool. I don't know. I don't really remember even why we thought that versus something else. I think we weren't ready for New York. And if you're in Boston, it's kind of like you're either going to New York or, in our, our case, L.A., because a lot of people at Emerson got internships in L.A. That's kind of part of what they did. But that was more the, the film side. So everyone we knew was kind of going to New York or L.A. or was staying in Boston, which neither of us really wanted, and um, so Pittsburgh just seemed like, I don't know, like, maybe there's a mid-sized city solution here, and so I went back to Pittsburgh, and it was great. Like I said, it was a very different experience. Um, Working at the Warhol was amazing. I got interested in, um, I started, I think, in in visitor services, but I got uh, put on the track to to be an artist educator, and I loved that, and I ended up, you know, doing that for a couple of years, and... um, finding that I love teaching and working with, like, you know, we would do, like, community programs with, like, the high school kids nearby. And and also, I think I found that, like, that sort of cultural critique piece of, of, of art could be a really interesting way and a conduit to, like, talk about um, social issues that 
you know, I mean, the Warhol Museum itself did a great job of connecting the collections to whatever, you know, like there was like a death penalty exhibit, for example, uh, electric chairs, and um, like I remember like a lot of things like that, like we really would engage like these big social issues through his art because he just did so much stuff that it was actually pretty easy to to find things of relevance in that way. So that was really helpful to me, actually, that really understands that art didn't have to be... I mean, I knew it, but like to really get that you could, you could make... You can make work and show people work that felt like salient and part of what was happening right now, mm-hmm. um, and that art could be a way to communicate ideas about social progress. And um, I just I feel like I saw that really clearly there, and it was really cool. And they also had amazing public programs and brought in a lot of people from from New York and from other places. So it it just felt like a very different. I mean, even though Pittsburgh ended up being like I said a lot more interesting and cool than I even thought, the Warhol was like its own place. I mean, it's funded by the Dia Foundation, which is obviously connected to the Dia in New York, and it, it just, it had much more of a cultural exchange with the city, I think, than, than anywhere else in Pittsburgh. So that's cool. Yeah. Um, were you involved in uh, organizing work at the time? Or? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so in Boston, I co-ran this open mic uh, called Kadesh, which became like it was it was itself an offshoot of an open mic called Kivetch that started in San Francisco, and, and I I guess I kind of left this all out, but I I became friends with Michelle T in in Boston around that time. It was like when I was like maybe a sophomore in college, and that happened because so let's see, I got involved with Kivetch because of this woman Sarah Seinberg who went to the MFA school for photography, and she had lived in San Francisco before. She was a few years older than me. So she had been part of this like queer literary community in San Francisco. I think I showed up at her open mic Kvetch, which was the offshoot of the Kvetch in San Francisco. Uh, and I she like liked me, like she liked my writing or something. And so then she said, Will you co host this with me? Which felt like a big deal at the time. <laughs> it was like nineteen. Um, and also it was kind of the time of open mics, you know, and so this was like a real, you know, grassroots effort to bring together queer community around writing. And um, so I did that with Sarah uh, in Boston for like I think like two years or three years, and I also met Michelle when she came through town. I kind of got connected to this like much bigger queer community that was sort of centered in San Francisco, but then had like sort of disbanded in some ways. Um, so yeah, that's a big piece. And then when I moved to Boston, I mean when I moved to Pittsburgh, uh, me and my ex, we I had done like a couple other like kind of art events and public events in 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 Boston, and I really liked doing that. And so when we moved to Pittsburgh, uh, I started at Quebec Pittsburgh. With, with my ex, and um, and that was like something we did out of like an art like an art studio basically there, and it kind of became a big deal. It's like on the cover of local paper and like that sort of thing. And my mom came sometimes and brought cookies for everyone, which was really cute. And, <laughs> and it was fun to be part of like the, the Pittsburgh was going through this revitalization that now has totally become gentrification, but at the time it was revitalization that was actually pretty sorely needed because it, they were just like basically like bombed out strips of where nobody was doing anything or even living, you know, so the city was subsidizing artists who wanted to um, buy houses if they would make the first floor into a gallery. So it's something like, uh, you know, if you if you create a gallery and you keep it operational for three years or something, then they would forgive you anything left on your home loan or something like that, which was a pretty cool deal. So a lot of people were moving back and, and that was including the place where we were having this event. So it was sort of like an interesting time to be there and be part of like a change in the city that again I had such a different dynamic with before and to, to be part of a queer community there and, and 
kind of create queer community there where they're in a new way, like that sort of brought back the arts piece of it. So yeah, so I, that that was mostly what I did in Pittsburgh. It was like worked at the Warhol and then did my own kind of um, events around uh, writing um, and, and queer literary stuff. Did you have like a continuing writing practice at that time? Yeah, I did. I like. So I remember, I feel like I was trying to, like I like started writing prose, and then I was still learning kind of how to do it. And I was doing, I was doing some journals. I was writing for the city paper, um, and trying to write. You know, I, I was applying to grad school in fiction at some point, so I must have been trying to write for that. You know, trying to kind of create the prose I needed to do that. Um, and I was really still learning. So yeah, I was, and I was reading at this open mic, and you know, so it was sort of like. Yeah, I was I was trying to figure out still how to write in this new way, and I was doing like I was I was engaging with it publicly, and I was doing some journalism, and those were like kind of the main ways I was writing at the time. Yeah, it's a little wild to talk about how you got to where you got because it's like I never thought about all these interconnected themes before. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. and connected communities. Mm-hmm. It sounds like yeah. And how much I've always, I mean, I know I've always been a deep, like, deeply engaged in queer community, but sometimes laying it out like this, it's just like, wow, I really haven't ever known anything else, you know? Which is cool. Yeah. <laughs> and you ended up in San Francisco. Yeah. So I applied to, I, I was getting together a sort of grad school application very broadly, but I didn't. I like looked at a few places. I didn't really know where I wanted to go or what I wanted. I remember looking really closely at the University of Minnesota, actually, really feeling interested in that program. And the relationship I was in kind of fell apart, so it kind of allowed me to be more open. Um, and then, honestly, I like met somebody in San Francisco, and that's kind of why it's up there. <laughs> uh, I mean, I liked SF State's program, but you know, I feel like I applied to it just so I would have a reason to move. Honestly, you know, like, but I, I also kind of felt like with grad school, and maybe this was a real miscalculation, but it felt like I don't know, like after a certain point, all of them seemed, many of them seemed equally interesting, um, and it kind of seems like I don't even know what kind of thing I'm trying to write. So maybe just like within this galaxy of options, like, you know, I let my life kind of lead me, and I don't know, I had this kind of dynamic with San Francisco, because I knew all these people that I was talking about earlier who lived there, and this was in between bubbles, so it was an interesting time to be in San Francisco. There had been a big exodus of New Yorkers, actually, who had moved there um, around the time I did, so it was sort of an interesting, this was like 2004, 2005, and so it was sort of an interesting time to be, to be there, and, uh, and yeah, so I, I think I was attracted to it because I kind of like had an idea about it. I really didn't want to stay in Pittsburgh, even though I, I sort of felt like I was in a fork in the road with living there. I almost felt like I either needed to like almost like kind of commit to a professional track because I had the best job I could imagine. And I realized that if I was going to stay in Pittsburgh, I wanted to stay at the Warhol. It was a, it's an amazing place, but I think I just wasn't really ready. Like I was seeing the people around me kind of settling down really and I was in my early 20s and I just felt like I don't think I'm ready to like be in my own town settling down like a good job at a museum even though I, I for years after was like I hope that was the right choice because it was such a great situation but um, but I think I wanted to be back in the bigger world you know so uh, so then I went to San Francisco and I, I did apply to SF State and got in um, and, and I think I went sort of knowing that I was going to school there I can't remember the exact time 
but I'm pretty sure I got in and then went. Um, and so, yeah, so I went and moved there and started at SSA, which was interesting. <laughs> um, was your literary community there because of knowing Michelle T, um, like, wider than the MFA community? Yes, though, a very cool thing about it, at least at that time, I, I'm probably, I'm pretty sure this isn't, this can't still be true because, you know, it just was a moment where it was more affordable in San Francisco than I think, you know, it has been since for sure and maybe even had been before for quite some time because of the first bubble and then the bursting of that bubble. So I, it was a, it was a relatively affordable city. Um, and, you know, it felt like it was full of artists. Like, it just felt like everybody was an artist or a writer. So a very cool thing about it was that I I would go to my program and then I would be with my friends from my, my program at school, but then I feel like I, there was a ton of readings. I mean, just all the time there were readings at bars, and, you know, up and down, you know, the mission, and they were always interconnected with my queer community. I mean, there wasn't really, it was a kind of, it felt almost seamless, and a very cool thing about being in San Francisco in general, I think, but certainly back then was like, straight people had to kind of just get with it. Like, they just had to be down in queer culture. And, like, it, that was truly, like, I mean, it, it really is, it, at, at the time, anyway, it was a town run by queer people, it felt like. And, you know, so I felt like there wasn't really, it was almost surprising in the first couple of years to discover that, you know, I could be at a Litquake event, you know, um, which was, like, their big literary festival every year. Like, and they would have this, like, this lit crawl thing where you went from reading to reading to reading. It's like, I'd see everybody I knew, you know, from my program, from my queer community, and, and they were reading together things, and they knew each other, and it was just like, that was the feeling of it. And, uh, and Michelle was like the queen, you know? <laughs> Not just the queer literary community in San Francisco, but really, uh, you know, when she moved to LA, it was such a dramatic thing for people, because she was such a figure of, you know, San Francisco in general. And, um, and I think her, and like, people like Rebecca Solnit, and these people, they all, as different as they were, they, they all felt connected to each other and would often be at the same events. And she ran this, Michelle ran this great event called Radar, which is part of how I think I ended up wanting to come to San Francisco. She invited me and my ex when I was still in Pittsburgh to come out to read at Radar at the San Francisco Public Library. And I was like, this is so cool. Like she's this sort of, I knew Michelle a little bit socially and then coming and doing this thing and seeing like the library sort of putting this big stamp of approval on her like outsider, queer, punk, you know, literary aesthetic, it really made me realize that San Francisco was a place where, you know, the time anyway, you could really come still and be yourself uh, in a creative way and in a, you know, queer gender way. Um, and the city would really embrace you. And that was true. At least then. <laughs> where where were some of your favorite spaces, bookstores, bars, mm. that you hung out a lot? Yeah, I think I spent most of my time really in the mission in terms of all of that because it was all kind of together. Mm -hmm. Like there's a bookstore, Dog-Eared Books, mm -hmm. <laughs> that I spent a lot of time in. Um, there were just, I mean, I'm trying to think, there was like, there was the Lexington, obviously, which was like the lesbian club that I, you know, before transition spent time in. And also where I watched trans men, you know, have to sort of navigate and integrate. I mean, that was also this big flashpoint, you know, the, the mid to late aughts of, you know, what felt like a lot of people transitioning kind of at the same time, or at least like a lot of awareness about trans men in particular. And I think in some ways San Francisco was a real center for that. Um, and the, the things that came out of community, you know, uh, 
productive and productive conflict around like lesbian spaces and trans men and you know I was in the middle of all of that and I still hadn't transitioned myself I, I did have top surgery in 2009 so which I didn't know anyone else who'd done that you know like where, who, who wasn't planning yet formally to transition so I don't know it was like an interesting time like the, you know I finished grad school in 2009 so like the last you know the last half of the aughts I was you know Going to all like going to a lot of literary related events at bars and that sort of thing, and also maintaining like a related queer community. But towards the end of my time in San Francisco, as I was like kind of thinking about gender a lot more and trying to figure myself out, it was it was an interesting time because it felt like very up for everyone in a way that I think the rest of the country was not. Maybe in New York, I don't know, but it just felt like it was. There was a lot of conversations happening there that I don't necessarily think were happening in other places. Um, particularly around like trans mask folks and lesbians and the, the dynamic between. I mean, it was a lot of like, where have all the butches gone? Like that whole vibe. Um, and it was very interesting to be part of that and sort of bearing witness to it and myself not really knowing where I fell, you know, on all the lines of that. So, but yeah, so that was like my sort of experience with Washington Club, but I'm trying to think of where else. I mean, there was like a, a place called like the Buena Vista Social Club or something like that. There's like a lot of like cool little bars that were just up and down, you know, uh, Valencia um, that I that I hung out with in a lot. And I always lived outside of the city. I lived in Oakland pretty much the whole time I was definitely the whole time I was in that area. Um, but I lived in like I tried really hard. My my partner at the time and I like we tried very hard never to live in any place that was actively gentrifying, which actually was possible back then. So I was living in like the Piedmont Ave area, which was like just sort of this like, I don't know if you're familiar, but it's like this, yeah, the foot of the Piedmont Hills, like kind of just this like cute little villagey part of Oakland that, you know, was just sort of middle class, but you could get an apartment for cheap and, um, but near Temescal and, um, which was actively gentrifying in a way that, I don't know, there was just a lot of like kind of horrifying stuff happening around gentrification. Uh, and I say horrifying because I mean literally in both financially like, there was ways that artists were being incentivized to rent spaces, and then the city was, like, um, basically using that to develop the spaces and then jacking up their rents to a point where they couldn't afford to live there. It was all very, like, you know, and then they would make up names for areas, and it would, they would just turn over really quickly, and it was disturbing to watch. Um, and it was horrifying because the crime rates were... The, the, the crime and the kind of crime that was happening was uh, bananas. Like, just... I had a friend who had a guy, like, sleep under her bed like, break into her house and sleep under her bed. And, uh, I knew another person was held up by, like, a machine, like, a, not a machine gun, but, like, a, you know, some sort of giant assault rifle. Or, and I, myself, was attacked at gunpoint and, uh, in a really terrifying mugging. So I just felt like there was a lot of unrest. And, um, and it felt like a lot of that had to do with the politics of how the city was handling, you know, gentrification and pushing people out of their homes and, the drug epidemic that they never resolved and probably introduced themselves into the <laughs> area and all that. So, so that part was really upsetting to witness. Um, but yeah. When did you move away from San Francisco? Um, I moved away in 2011, which is also the year I began my transition. And I moved uh, to Providence, uh, Rhode Island, with my, with my ex. We were still together. I had already um, started my transition socially, like right before I left. I like let people know, um, and then my I I planned on beginning my medical transition 
in, uh, in, in Boston at Fenway, but I lived in, in Providence, you know, so like there's an hour commute. Uh, but I was working at the Boston Phoenix, so I got a job at the Phoenix before I moved back to the East Coast. Um, what kind of reporting were you doing at that time? Mm. Well, at the time I wasn't, um, I was like, I like had a frustrating experience with, like as much as now I feel like I gained so much from getting my MFA, I felt like I didn't have the best luck with like literary publications. So when I was in San Francisco, like I was struggling to get published you know, in sort of literary magazines in, in, a, in the sort of classic sense that you're supposed to. And I felt very annoyed by the whole thing. And even though I was, like, doing all these, you know, literary things, going to these events and readings and stuff, like, I just, I I wasn't, I don't know, I just, I, I never quite, like, I guess, like, gelled with, like, the kind of just the way in which it's done, you know, in the literary world. And uh, so I'd written, like, a few, like, pieces um, like I wrote for, um, I wrote about like the the people who fish off the Berkeley piers for like Berkeley magazine or whatever, um, that sort of thing. And then uh, the big turning point for me was like right after I finished grad school, I um, I was feeling frustrated about all this stuff, and my partner said like you know well if you could if you could write anything right now, don't even think about it, just answer like what would you write? <laughs> I said a modern love for the New York Times, which I think what I really was trying to say was like, I want to write something that will like reach people. I want to write something that's like. I don't think that just because something is poppy, it's not literary, you know? Like, I, I don't know. I just had this really strong... Maybe it was just I was rebelling or something, but I really wanted to write something broad. Um, and so I did. And then that, that, in 2011, that was published. Um, the Modern Love was published. And then we moved right after that to Providence. So then when I got... I, when I started at the Phoenix, I really started at the bottom in terms of, like, journalism jobs. Like, I hadn't had an actual job in journalism. I just freelanced and done an internship or two and written some articles, so I got a copy editing job, which was great, actually. Um, so the first, I think the first year I was in Phoenix, the first six months maybe, I just did copy editing and fact-checking, um, and then, and, and some writing for them, and then they moved me into an editor role on the arts desk. So then I then I was doing a lot of like arts writing um, about um, just like stuff going on, I made a lot of film reviews, a lot of like... I mean, I remember interviewing Jennifer Egan. I got to talk to all kinds of really interesting writers and people because the Phoenix had such a reputation. I mean, it was like so many amazing, you know, Susan Orlean, I believe, and all kinds of interesting people got their start there. And it, it really had this, like, institutional power that I think a lot of all weeklies didn't. And so the people I could get on the phone to talk to me were amazing, and it was great. And uh, so I spent a couple of years at the Phoenix doing, like, that kind of thing, like arts sort of reporting, mostly. And then we did do a queer issue that I largely organized and edited uh, with, with the help of the rest of the team. Uh, and so, yeah, so I, I did that for, I think it was like, maybe it was three years that I was at the Phoenix. We shuttered at some point in the process. We got to be there for the end. Uh, <laughs> which was actually kind of interesting, actually. I mean, it really was like an interesting moment to, to see sort of the fall of print journalism. It was sad, but like, I felt, I, felt, I kind of feel like Boris Gump a little bit. Like, I feel like I've been at these places, at these exact moments when these big social shifts have been happening. And maybe it's because I keep inserting myself into them, but regardless, it's, it's been really cool. Yeah. What was it like to um, be transitioning during that time with that job? Yeah. Well, so the other thing I was doing, I guess I, I didn't mention this, is I was freelancing. They let me freelance um, for, like, The Atlantic and 
and, and BuzzFeed, LGBT, and like all like Vice. Um, so the big thing that was happening, and, and I and I wrote about the slum for the Phoenix, but because I was on the arts desk, they sort of were like, you know, it's cool if you want to write about non-arts related stuff elsewhere. But as I was transitioning, it was like the recession had happened in two thousand nine. So what was happening in 2011 was what people were calling the masculinity crisis, and it was a global, it was considered a global economic event, you know, um, but the, the things people were pointing out about the, the masculinity crisis were um, things I felt I was experiencing myself in my transition socially. So, you know, there was so much about, like, sort of the loneliness epidemic and the way men were, um, like, all these things that now I know are called, like, man box behaviors, but they were just being sort of framed through... They were framed unquestioningly, like the actual innateness of the masculine behaviors were sort of not questioned, but the like fallout was sort of presented in this gendered way because of the way we tie masculinity and, and, and work together, for example. So men losing jobs and like the marriage markets crumbling and all of these things were just, there was no questioning of the inherent gender underneath it all. So it was weird because I felt like I was going through this transition in a place that like, in some, Boston's a great town in terms of being liberal, but it's not necessarily a place that's super diverse, or at least super mixed in its diversity, I should say, and, um, and there are queer and trans people there for sure, and there were back then, but it, it, I don't know, it, it felt like it's a place that's much more regionally, in my experience, it's, it's sort of like your regional identity is more important, and then everything else is sort of secondary, and I didn't have that regional identity really, like I wasn't from New England, and so I didn't have that in common, and so even though I appreciated that there was if that makes sense, there was some diversity in, in every group I was in because people were very, like, Boston-y, especially in the Phoenix. <laughs> um, I didn't have that background, and then I was also transitioning. So I felt like I was surrounded by a lot of supportive people uh, and a lot of, like, real Boston politics, real liberal Boston politics who wanted to see me succeed, but I didn't feel like I had a lot in common with them. Um, and also, I was really trying to unbraid this whole masculinity crisis thing and write about it, and it was at a point in time, you know, especially with like, Obama being in the White House and everything, it just felt like, and, and it was before really the quote trans tipping point, um, or sort of leading up to that, like I had the, the first interview besides the New Yorker with Laverne Cox, and where just the black came out, I think we had the, the, published the stories the same week, you know, so that, that was happening, and there was like, and BuzzFeed LGBT was doing great stuff, and, and so, I don't know, there was like kind of this strain of like kind of queer trans stuff going on that was really progressive and interesting and trans visibility and yet I was experiencing at the same time a really dissonant experience of social gender and trying to write about that and explain it and, and talk about it and feeling like in a way nobody knew what I was talking about like <laughs> you know like people were kind of like that's just because you're trans you know a little bit I felt um so so I yeah so I wrote for the Atlantic like I just I was writing these pieces about like, I just tried to focus on men who weren't trans necessarily, who were thinking about this stuff or doing work around this. And, and I found like a whole community of like um, people who came out of domestic violence prevention who were doing healthy masculinities work. And so I tried to like kind of shine spotlights on them and just try to understand what they were doing because I felt like at least they were talking about the same stuff I was talking about. So I guess my time in Boston felt like in many ways I kind of learned how to report on this beat of like masculinity, which nobody really I think saw as a beat, but I did. Uh, and, and I was also part of, like, you know, transmissibility, I guess, and trying to, like, you know, think about that, like, what's happening with, like, all, all these new sort of storylines about trans people. And I was also writing about the trans narratives that I was, 
like wrangling with myself because I didn't really relate to most of them, and I got really interested in, you know, why are we so focused on trans kids? What does that mean? And like, why? What are the stories we've been telling about trans people, and how how have those narratives disrupted me? And whose lens are being applied to those narratives? So all of that I was thinking about and writing about for many publications, and I was also writing my own my first memoir. Um, which I wrote on the train back and forth to work because it was like an hour commute. Um, mostly I wrote it on the train and also on the weekends and stuff. So it's like a really rich time, but a lot of different strains of things going on. <laughs> sure. Um, the train between, was that the train between Boston and Providence? Yeah, because it was like an hour. I mean, I still wish I could have that kind of... I wish I had something like that again, because at first it was so frustrating to do that, but then over after time it was just like amazing, because my brain would literally just turn on at 8 or whatever. It'd sit down, I'd write, and then when I came back at like 6.30 and got back on the train again, or whatever the time was, it's like, my brain just knew. Like, this is, these are these two hours a day that you write, and it, it really did. It was like the morning I would write, and the, the afternoon I would edit, and then I would write on the weekends. Um, but it really was a cool like, inconsistent <laughs> process in a way I've not been able to replicate since really. Well, <laughs> yeah. were you writing on a computer? Yeah. On a computer, on the commuter rail. You know, it was quiet in the quiet car. It yeah. was really perfect, actually. Amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I read it. <laughs> um, what part of Providence were you living in? Oh, the west side of Providence? Um, I'm trying to remember what the street was called. I don't remember. It was over by, oh, what's that bar that's kind of cool? Louis Fuller. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah, over there, like a couple blocks from that place. Yeah. It was great. Providence was a cool town. Like, there was a lot of, it was actually a nice balance to Boston, you know, because I think Providence had cooler restaurants and bars and, you know, in some ways a more sort of like radical community that felt a little more familiar to me. Um, and, Boston obviously had more amenities and, you know, more opportunities career-wise and stuff, so it was like kind of a nice mix to go between the two places. When did you come to New York? So I came to New York, so Phoenix shuttered in like 2014, no, 2013, something like that, 2013 I think. And I worked for like a few months, like doing some consulting and doing some like you know, doing my freelancing and um, finishing the book, and then the relationship I was in was also like, sort of falling apart at that point, and I knew I was in the same Providence, so I started applying to jobs in New York, and kind of randomly, like, I came out for a job interview at, like, the first place, really, that said, yeah, let's, I want, we want to talk to you, and it was um, a place called Policy Mike that became Mike, uh, and this was when they were first around, so it was, like, kind of, this was 2000. It must, been, it must have been the end of 2013 that I was talking to them, and I think I moved uh, right after that, the beginning of 2014. Um, and I took a job there as like an editor in what they were calling the identity section. Uh, <laughs> and at the time, Policy Mike was this like, it was, a, it was kind of a cool idea actually. It was like basically like blogging, it was like a blogging platform for people who had different political beliefs, and the idea, and like young people, and the idea was like, you know, people could like have dialogue with each other and so on. and. Um, but it, it wasn't sustainable. So, like, the, I was part of the, the process of, like, let's make this a media company and not a blogging platform. Um, and this was sort of at the moment where everybody was pivoting to digital. So Mike became Mike and became this media company, and I was the managing editor during the transition from blogging platform to 
media company who like became that. You know, what became the millennial news site. <laughs> um, and Mike became incredibly um, popular and successful for a while. In the end, not so much, but you know, when I was there, it was really successful and popular. <laughs> and I learned a lot about you know digital media, and um, and I wrote a lot uh, for them, and for they also let me write. I mean, every place I worked let me write elsewhere, so that was very cool. Um, yeah, so that that's what I came to doing. I guess it was twenty must have been twenty fourteen that I came here, but I talked to them I believe twenty fourteen and left it out then. Yeah, there's there a lot of like technology transition. Like, We're um, not even done economic yet. transition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, what what happens next? What happened next was so it's twenty fourteen and then my book I think came out. Am I right? Yeah. My book came out in twenty fourteen. So I um so so in that interim I finished it, I got an agent, and but in the end I actually sold the book to City Lights uh, through Michelle T's imprint, which was the sister spin imprint. And that book was called Man Alive. That came out in 2014. Um, and actually, it was really like, it, it wasn't like it sold a lot, but my people really responded well to it, which was great. It was definitely more than I expected for like a small book on a small press. City Lights was very enthusiastic about it, and they were amazing, and really like went out and championed it. And the book itself was meant to be a kind of, um, almost like a, like there were all these sort of trans memoirs that I was, I appreciated, but I was finding very frustrating and not seeing my story in, and I thought all of these, like, the ways that, I call it the violence of othering, but the way in which trans people have been positioned as metaphors or wedge issues or, I don't know, symbolic in some sort of way, good or bad, I, I find troubling. And um, I really wanted to write a book that was about, that was a, a quote, you know, trans narrative in that moment but really was a response to the ways those stories were often told in this sort of like very didactic way I found just weird and, and didn't speak to me um, so in the book it's like three quarters of the book is about basically like preparation to transition Like, and my thought was like we've all had giant transitions we've all many of us have experienced a death or a divorce or a pregnancy or a you know move across the country or like huge identity shifts that like really define who we are and how do we decide that we want to take those sorts of leaps? Like, how do we know it's the right thing? Because so much of my experience of transitioning was like, I don't know, like, it's not like, I, I had dysphoria and stuff, but I wasn't like, I don't know. I, I, it, it all didn't feel super clear-cut to me. And I felt like at some point I just had to make a choice that felt the most right. Um, and then hope that it was true. And I really wanted to capture that because I felt very sure that I wasn't the only person or that trans people aren't the only people who experienced that. And I thought it was a disservice to us to either to either presuppose that everybody who's trans, I mean, now this doesn't sound revolutionary, but like at the time, I really wasn't hearing anyone say this, but to either presuppose that everyone who's trans is having like horrible dysphoria and that's the only reason to transition and everything's very medicalized. And I think that's part of it for a lot of people, myself included, but um, I also wanted to sort of I don't know, I just wanted to get at the nuance of how do you make this kind of big choice for yourself. And so that book was a lot about that. It was about reckoning with all kinds of ideas I had about men and my family and dealing with trauma and dealing with this trauma of this mugging I had happened to be in San Francisco that was really intense and where the guy went on to shoot two other men um, before my transition um, but let me go. And, and so, so that book came out at that time. And I think that, in many ways, kind of defined the next few years of my life because um, 
I didn't expect people to really care that much about it, but it, it did, you know, it got at least people's interest and some good reviews and drew attention, I think, from a lot of people who became, like, kind of writing contemporaries for me, which was very cool. Um, and also, by the time the book came out, um, that was 2014, I was only at Nike a little bit longer, and then I moved over to Quartz, which was, like, a, um, another digital news outlet, but that, a global business news site. And, uh, and so, sort of, the book came out, I think the book came out, actually, literally as soon as I arrived at Quartz, which also was when my mom died. So everything kind of happened at the same time. Um, and all of that sort of opened a whole new chapter of my life for, for better and obviously for worse in some ways, but for better in that course is like, was like an amazing place to work and to spend five years, which I did. Um, and which, which I think course was like a very, is a very respected media organization that was started by ex Wall Street Journal reporters and editors who really wanted to like find a different way to cover a more digitally native way to cover business news and their sort of composition was like business news is news in general and like this is relevant to everyone and, and so just working there and working with these like really you know pedigreed journalists who were like then you know supporters of me in a moment when also that was like around the trans tipping point quote unquote and so I had already been doing work like at Mike I remember when Chelsea Manning um, came out as trans like in the middle of her you know, trial or related stuff around her transition. Like, there's political stories about her, and then there was the fact that she transitioned. And I remember being in the Mike newsroom, and we faced that same problem everyone faced, which was like, how do we address that this happened and keep telling these other stories about her? Like, what do we do? We need to say anything, or do we just do the one story about her transition, and then, um, you know, that she's she's come out, and then we move on. And and so we did the right thing. I think we just said like. We did the story that, like, you know, Chelsea Manning's trans, like, she just came out, and then we did, in the other reporting of the same day, of something like, Chelsea Manning, in paragraph, you know, formerly Bradley Manning, Man Manning, and that was it. And I remember, like, that was a huge moment, because a few other places did that, and then places like NPR, as I remember, like, really didn't, and um, got a lot of blowback, and, and to me, that was a big moment in media, because I felt like I really had to explain over and over again some of the stuff, and, and I was lucky that Mike got it, and they were supportive of, like, being sort of on the edge of that, so when I went to Quartz, um, I brought that same kind of like, I guess, sort of media. <laughs> I don't, it's like I don't really necessarily, I haven't really wanted to be like this person necessarily always, but I feel like I'm the person in the room who's like, okay, we got to think about this differently and make sure that we're aware of this. And Quartz was incredibly supportive. They, I, I really didn't experience any blowback at all from them ever or pushback around, um, around being thoughtful about covering trans stories. And I'm lucky because that was the period, I think, where really there was a lot of, confusion in media kind of about like they knew people knew we needed to change but they weren't totally sure how to do it within the like kind of constraints of the profession and there was a lot of confusion and concern about how to do that well and um, so when I was a course like I got to be I, I was an editor and I was part of like making sure that happened and I was also randomly or not randomly but like I found myself ending up doing a lot of like uh, I ended up the head of growth of course which was like a kind of to me, sort of random thing, but I guess uh, not so random because I had this whole experience from Mike of like understanding how Facebook worked, and I learned all that, and so I brought it to courts, and, and I also was always from the modern love story, like thinking about audience and how do you get people to care about what you're writing and sort of bridge across to people who, who don't know they care, 
about what you're saying. I feel like that's the story of my life. So, <laughs> so like, that was what I did at Quartz, too. I, like, was an editor, and I was also the head of growth, and our growth strategy was really headlines. It was poetry. It's, like, how do you create a headline that really, like, is intellectually honest, that truly tells the story of what the story is about, and that takes our different reporters, like, obsessions and, and condenses them into something that can be intriguing enough that people will want to, you know, be interested enough to click on it. So, so I was part of, like, thinking about how do you reach audiences in the digital age. Like, I was a big part of that, of course, and then course was an industry leader in that. So that was sort of a strange period in my life because the book had come out. Um, I was doing this kind of very businessy, though related to, to my other interests, like, piece of, of editorial work, and then I was also doing a lot of um, freelancing, uh, and my mom died, and so I was dealing with, like, loss, and that went on for a couple of years, and then I knew I wanted to write a book about masculinity, and so the book kind of came out of, I don't know, like, the fallout I was experiencing around, like, socialized, like, all of these ways that socialized masculinity was kind of catching up to me, I guess, um, as I was navigating all of that at the same time. I know, it's a lot of different strains. <laughs> okay. Um, where, where in the city were you living at the time? Um, well, when I first moved, I lived in, I lived in kind of like the Flatbush area, but not for very long, like for a few months, and then I moved to the Lower East Side. And I lived there for like three years. Um, so most of that time I was on, on the Lower East Side, and then eventually I moved to Landersburg. Um, but not until, like, kind of the end of my tenure at courts. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess I am curious a little bit about um, when you lost your mom, just what that time was like, um, what your, I guess, time outside of work was like. Yeah. at that time, what your support system was like? Well, I mean, it was really hard because, I, you know, I had been in a long relationship that ended and moved to New York, and work was kind of like what I had going for me, and I was new to the city, and it's like incredibly challenging to move here, you know? Um, everything went wrong. Like, I moved into my first apartment, I obviously had like roaches, and, you know, it was a nightmare place, and I had to like break the lease and leave, and, uh, I didn't really know anybody. I mean, it's just like every bad thing that happens to people in New York, I definitely experience. Um, no worries. Okay. So sorry. <laughs> and, then, um, and then I met my wife, which was great, and the big bright spot and all that. And that was in March of 2015, so before my mom died, but, but not by very much. I met her in March... Um, and I'd been like sort of dating people casually and that was a nightmare too. Like <laughs> just everything was kind of a nightmare. So like, you know, I was like dating casually and my wife, uh, Jess, she, a friend had been trying to set us up actually. And we were both kind of like, yeah, maybe, I don't know. Like we didn't know each other. Like this, this woman was really convinced that we would really have gone. And we both were like, okay, like, you know, it's like weird when somebody feels that way, you know, we didn't know. And, um. So then we actually kind of met, we met at a, uh, at a party and uh, not knowing the other person would be there, but we knew who each other was from like the internet or whatever, and we really hit it off. Um, but we both felt 
not quite ready to be in a relationship. So we both decided to like, um, just sort of like be friends, I guess, for initially. And I, I was taking a break from dating at all. Um, and so then we had a few months of being friends. And then by July, I think we'd like, been like, uh, we should like go on dates. Like we obviously like each other. <laughs> so we started dating in July. And then my mom died in September. Uh, so Jess and I, when we started dating, it was like, it just was like a really intense situation because like it felt like we had to make a lot of decisions. Like my mom had like a short illness, so it was like, um, I mean, yeah, it's like no, we started dating in May, so my mom got sick in July, so it was like we had only a few months, and then I really, I don't know, I felt pretty convinced that I would end up marrying her. Um, like I don't know, I just have a, I'm like a Pisces. I sometimes just know. <laughs> I mean, it like felt psychic. Like I was like, I don't know. It's not like the right time, but I just had this feeling, and I really was worried. I didn't know that my mom was going to die, but I was worried she would. And so we went down and met her. Just met her before she died uh, in August, which was intense, obviously. Uh, and so I don't know. My life was like a lot of that. It was like a lot of dealing with my mom being sick, trying to take care of her. Um, hi. hi, no worries. <laughs> being at a, a new job. At course, and trying to like make sure that you know, I don't know, that I was doing well at the job, and yeah, and then just met her. She died like a couple of weeks after that, so then my life was about that, and so it, I don't know. It was sort of like I had like a, I had some friends, like I had a, I had a few people I met through Mike, and then I also had like some like kind of people I knew from online who were like queer community folks here that like I was spending time with and um, like you know I got kind of in that. I mean I, the queer community in any city is like kind of connected to the queer community in every other city I found so it's like I had my sort of loose connection friends from San Francisco who were sort of part of the like that world who then moved here so I had people and I you know I went to Reese Beach and I did all the like queer New York things but I didn't feel like I I think the combination of like, you know, transitioning and the first few years and all my questions I had about being a man and, and socialized masculinity and a way that that kind of disrupted my relationship with the queer community, which also happened because I was living in Boston where I didn't really have a big queer community and then coming to New York where I didn't really know a lot of people and then my mom dying and then dating being weird because I wasn't sure how to date as a queer person at that time. It was like really, truly like the beginning of online you know, dating in a big way, and I didn't understand how to navigate that. I'd been in a relationship for nine years, um, so I didn't really know how to do any of that stuff. So I felt like, when I think about that time, it just feels like total chaos. <laughs> Everything fell apart. I didn't know how to do anything I was like felt like I was supposed to be doing, and my book came out, and professionally, my life was going really well, but like outside of my professional life, I just, I felt like a baby who didn't know how to navigate anything. And I think everyone who moves to New York feels like that when they move to New York. It's like everything you think that you know is not going to work here. It just isn't. You have to really learn not just how to do a job or how to whatever, but like how to navigate the city. So I wasn't prepared for that at all. Um, and uh, and then of course I was still figuring out how to operate as a man in the world and how I wanted to do that in a way that felt honest and authentic and trying to figure out how to be in relationship to other people. And then navigating this like horrible situation with my mom and her dying and it was very unexpected and so yeah it was just like a just felt like a bomb went off in my life and that was my first 
couple of years in New York, which, I mean, in a way, is great because I feel like that's, I mean, not great, but it was very, like, on theme. <laughs> very New York too. Truly couldn't have gone much worse than that. <laughs> <laughs> when did that start to shift or... Um... Yeah, I think when I... Well, definitely when Jess and I started dating, obviously, I felt like there was something, you know, I hadn't dated anyone that I really liked, you know, in a really long time, so that was really special, and that felt like there was a future for me um, in that realm, which was important to me, and I think when I moved up to the apartment on the Lower East Side, which I really loved, it was a very small studio apartment, but I'd been living in, um, in such a bad situation, I mean, literally, I, there was like... I remember that I decided to move out. <laughs> the day I decided to move out of the old place was when I found um, a baby roach in the refrigerator. And I was like, this refrigerator is sealed. Do you know what I mean? It's a refrigerator, and it's a baby. Like, wh where did it even come from? I mean, it was so beyond. <laughs> I was like, I have to leave. I'm going to lose my mind. Like, this is beyond anything. So um, so that was so bad. And then this apartment was like, I don't know. I mean, it was on the Lower East Side. It was a tenement building. It was beyond what I probably, I mean, what I could truly afford at the time, but it was, like, manageable and I could do it, and it just felt like, I don't know, there's, like, it felt like a new beginning, and maybe, like, a restart kind of thing, um, and that was in the few months before my mom died, so there was sort of a beginning feeling there of, like, okay, like, I can do this, and then my mom got sick, and then that was obviously awful, but the one positive part of it was, like, my brother and sister and I were, were close, and so we had to, like, really work together and we did really work together to to manage my mom's health and, and you know it was just the three of us so we really had to like figure that out together and I think that even though that was terrible it was nice to be kind of it kind of brought me back closer to my family again um, so in a way that was when things started to change I guess but then my mom dying was just so awful and it was so awful and then things got really dark, but actually it was sort of one of those like darkest before the dawn things because I think I had to hit a kind of bottom with that because it connected back to my gender stuff. I really was like walking around so mad, like in a grief kind of rage, but also that was when I was really, I, I'd been reporting on this masculinity stuff. I was aware of like masculinity crisis, but I also was aware that people were kind of moving away at that point from, from that conversation. It was like the recession was in the rear view, more and more people were just talking about all these like things like the trans, you know, trans tipping point, and, and it just felt like people were moving on, at least in New York and in the cities, you know, and it felt like, I, I didn't feel like I was moving on, and I didn't think the things that had come up during that conversation about masculinity crisis ever got resolved. Like, there were still men playing video games and living at home and all that stuff, and it was just like, oh well, like, you know, <laughs> it felt like wait, where, what's going on here, and, um, and why am I relating to this? If this is just about this moment in the global recession, and I'm, you know, I'm employed, and I'm in New York City, and I'm having, like, a relatively okay time of it in, in this way, financially, right now, why do I relate to all this masculinity crisis stuff? Like, the, like the ways in which we've socialized masculinity. So, being in grief, I think, actually, to me, was the tipping point for me around, like, what became my next book, but also just changing my perspective on I felt really stuck and trapped and like I'd gone through this whole transition and then come out the other side and I was like this was it like I don't know I just the expectations and the 
and the privileges of masculinity and white masculinity were really disturbing to me. Um, and I think with my mom's dad, like, I really, I felt really isolated and, like, it was, like, an isolation sort of my own making, but also not really. I was, like, in that box. Like, I felt like I couldn't express my feelings or my friends, like, obviously cared, but I think they weren't quite sure how to, like, sort of affirm my identity gender-wise, but also reach out to me in, in the ways that, you know, they maybe would have in the past um, or be available or kind of, or maybe I was less, like, reaching out to them. I don't know, but something was getting mixed up with, like, socialized gender identity and my attempts to, like, I guess sort of, even though I was trying to resist all of that stuff, I also obviously wanted to feel real and valid, and I didn't know another way to do it. So I was just pretty, like, confused and also, like, kind of increasingly angry <laughs> because I was so mad anyway because that's part of grief, but I was also just like, this is the only emotion people seem to accept from me. Um, so that was awful, but then that summer of 2015, so like a few months after she died, when I was sort of at the height of that kind of feeling and it was just really dark, um, that was when I started getting into these like street skirmishes with, with men in Manhattan. And it was bizarre. It was like three months in a row, every month, a guy tried to start a fight with me um, in the street, which is not normal. And my part in it is that I think I was giving off a bad vibe, like a mad, bad vibe. So I think other guys who, in retrospect, it was 2015, it was always white guys, it was always white guys like about my age, um, who had some markers of like, uh, maybe not being in the best place, like sort of seeming a little like downtrodden maybe in certain ways, like unshaven, I guess is the best word for it. <laughs> but not unshaven artfully, just like, just people who seemed like they were having a rough time, but like, were okay, but you know, something was going on. I didn't have a language for it. I just knew like this, this certain kind of guy keeps like wanting to start shit with me. And so the third time that happened, it was like, you know, it was like guys going the wrong way on the one way street on their bike and then almost hitting me in the pedestrian. Like it's like, I was right. Like I'm trying to cross the street. You're going the wrong way, but now you're mad at me. And, and I feel like obviously now I would have a totally different reaction, but I was just so frustrated. So I would get into these little moments with, with these dudes. And then the last time it happened, like this guy and I had this really protracted argument that he started. It was like a, he thought I was taking a picture of his car. So the pretense doesn't even make any sense. <laughs> but anyway, like it was right outside my apartment. I think that was part of it. It was right outside my apartment. I was just trying to get ice cream for Jess and I at the bodega across the street. And I like, it was really like, I was actually having kind of a good day and I just wanted to like be inside with her eating ice cream. And instead I was on the street having this stupid argument with this guy for no reason about his car. And, uh, and it really like escalated and like kind of got to that point where people were like clearing out and like giving us space to fight, which I was also very conscious of. Like, wow, it's so wild that like somebody's like coming up to me and like trying to engage me in this way that's clearly violent and nobody gives a shit. And like, I know that's New York, but I also knew it was gendered, you know, like there was something about that that bothered me. And anyway, it got very like, um, heated. And then in the end, it's sort of like, I think I kind of just like screamed at him in a way that he was like, whoa, you seem nuts and so then he had I mean not to be ableist but he thought there was something wrong with me which I wanted him to think because I wanted him to go away but after that I was like you know why did men fight you know and so that's that was a turning point because I never even questioned these sort of fundamentals of masculinity that I kept being told were just like the way things were and that question led to me pitching a story to my to courts about learning how to fight in order to understand that answer to that question which I did write um and, that, and I also wanted to think about, like, white-collar men, because this was a moment where boxing was becoming very cool. This was 2015. 
Um, so I was like, why do people risk their bodies? Why do men risk their bodies specifically when they don't need to? And what are the economics of that? So, so in a way, kind of bridging that masculinity crisis story. Um, and yeah, so that I, I asked that question, but then in that, basically that started a whole new thing for me where I realized I could question masculinity and that the book was a bunch of questions I had about masculinity and I talked to all kinds of people for it and, and it changed the way I saw my own transition and the way I saw, I realized that so much of what I was struggling with was really a universal problem. <laughs> like literally universal, or at least literally universal in North America. Um, and every cis guy I talked to, academic and, you know, and not around like this, these topics, like were, you know, affirming that this was like a social, a structural social problem. So it wasn't just me having this inability to understand, you know, something through my own transition, which was a very shame-based perspective that I'd internalized, which is sort of the whole point of like, you know, policing masculinity. I, I took that in and then this was a way out. And so after that, like that's what all my work came from. And so that I think was really the, the turning point was, was that, was like going, like realizing I could ask those questions, have a journalistic perspective, learning how to box, you know, which I'm sure you're going to ask me about. But like that whole period was the turning point for me. Um, it felt like I had to invent a, like, literally a container um, to have a rite of passage for myself about, about what was going on, but also to like re-socialize myself um, because the way that I was being socialized just wasn't working for um, I was thinking about a question that I had written down kind of about um, navigating spaces that were traditionally um, not queer. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking of like the, the boxing ring as an example, but I'm kind of thinking like from what you're saying and from like this kind of search for community and contact and like some level of vulnerability, even if it's in this kind of, like, unexpected space. Like, mm -hmm. maybe, I don't know, maybe that question that I was thinking of is kind of the wrong question, and it's more, like, what what was allowed to happen or able to happen in that space yeah. in the gym that, like, wasn't accessible to you outside of that? Yeah, a lot. I mean, that was sort of a surprise for me. I mean, I guess the way you're saying it, it makes sense. It's like, probably really I was looking for community and I was feeling so isolated and I'd always had community. So I just found the nearest one that could work for me and I, I kind of like opened myself up to it in a way. But I didn't know at the time that's what I was doing. I really thought I was, I mean, first of all, I to write this story, which then became my book, Amateur, I went to the gym, you know, I had five months to train and the point was I was training for this charity fight that was going to be at Madison Square Garden. I didn't really think about any of that. I didn't think about how that wasn't enough time, because it truly wasn't. Like, you're supposed to train, everyone around me had trained at least a year, but most of them a year and a half, two years, three years. So this was, like, not enough time. Uh, I didn't think about how it was, like, a historic thing for a long time. I didn't really think about how I was probably the first trans man in the box of Madison Square Garden, which I was, but I didn't think about any of that. I just was, like, desperate for these answers and felt, like, in a dark place. It was like, I don't know. This is the only thing I think to do. And, and I also like made the decision to not be out as trans to tell the story because I felt concerned that that would be a mediating factor, you know, in how people treated me. And I really wanted to like make sure that my experience of this was like as, you know, as unmediated as possible, I guess, in terms of like traditional masculinity and, and the questions that I knew might come up. 
So I really kind of expected something totally different than what it actually ended up being for me, which was like um, a profoundly positive experience, truly. I mean, all the way through, like it really was. And, um, and the biggest positive piece for me was that it was so somatic. It was so like a physical, I, I had never, I don't think I'd ever been really a truly embodied person. I mean, I'm trans, so like I, I think I never felt super connected to my body and I'm a trauma survivor. And those two things, like, you know, even after my transition, I felt way better about myself aesthetically and I felt more comfortable but then I felt really disconnected from my body in public because I felt like all the sort of ways I was being treated felt, um, and the kind of feedback back loop of me then responding to those treatments. It's just like I felt like farther and farther from myself in this other way socially. And the gym was just like a purely physical space uh, with a very spiritual dimension. I mean, boxing is a very spiritual sport. I didn't know that, you know? I mean, I'm a fan, but like I didn't really understand that like without teammates and without anybody to like kind of cover the things that you're weak at, like you just have all your weaknesses exposed. And so therefore everyone can see them and especially when you're training with people. And so the guys I was around were like wall street guys and like my coach and like all these amateur, you know, either people who were like ex boxers who were like coaches and, you know, be very interesting mix of like class and race stuff happening. But Everybody was a boxer first, kind of like with Boston, everyone's doing litter first. And, and that, like the way that people treated you with respect was if you had a fight or not. They didn't care if it was a charity fight. You know, it was just like, are you willing to put yourself out there? Then you're one of us. And we don't really care who you are or what your experience is. Um, so it was really profound, actually, to like, they didn't, people didn't even care if you were any good. You know, I mean, I certainly wasn't that good, but it didn't really matter. Like, they cared if you had a heart, and that was like, I mean, it's all like very cliche, but it was true, you know? And so I I found a lot of intimacy with men, um, with cis men, in a way I never had before. And that intimacy came from being in this sort of shared experience. And I don't really know how to explain it, because I, I mean, I wrote a book about it, so obviously it's, it's explained there the best I could think to do it. But I think that... Um, what was really special about that community was that I found that there was a way to have a depth of connection that was um, different than I'd experienced in the past, but certainly not any less connected or any less deep or any less profound. And um, and I think the sad part of that was like what sociologists later told me, like called like the cover of violence. It's like the cover of violence allows men who might not otherwise to drop guards around, you know, performing masculinity and feel like they can actually be open to being intimate physically. But I mean, it was very like, literally, I've never been out more in my life than I was at this boxing gym. It was just a kind of constant, like, touching and um, physicalizing of affection um, because there's, like, a lack of fear of not being perceived as, you know, quote, a real man because you're in the realist space <laughs> doing the realist thing. All of this is about possible. Um, so, so it was always a little bittersweet because of, because of that. But then I, you know, once these guys knew I was trans, once my book came out, like once all that, it didn't change anything. Like they showed up at my book launch. Like they are still part of my life. You know, it wasn't actually dependent on my ability to sort of be one of them in the way that, you know, that I thought maybe it was. So that was also really an interesting lesson. It, 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 I think I had, I think I really felt pretty bad about like what it felt like the human condition was at that point and this was like a real redemptive um, and surprising experience which was really cool although the book is also a lot about like 
all of the terrible things I like, you know, was learning and, 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 and what I believed to be true and all my internalized biases about gender and like unlearning those things too. So it's not like I just had a great time, but it was definitely like, yeah, I found like a different kind of community there that wasn't that different really because people are people, but a different way of relating. Um, and you were with Jess that whole time. Yeah. When did you get married? We got married, well, you know, we had like a city hall kind of thing in 2017, but we got married in January, sorry, February of 2018. Yeah. And Antigua, Guatemala, where we've been spending a lot of time. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, and she does like, um, her career has been largely in international human rights stuff, so like that was important to her. She wanted to be someplace not in this country, ideally, and uh, and uh, kind of create an environment where our families could like be abroad with us and um, and build a community in a place that um, you know, with like uh, Guatemala specifically, like has a lot of like women's rights, grassroots women, women's rights groups and stuff. And you know, it was important to her to like find a place we could connect to and get financially to and that sort of thing. So. That's why we ended up in Guatemala. <laughs> Where do your brother and sister live? My sister's in Boston, so continued that relationship with Boston. They still go all the time. Yeah. Uh, and my brother's in uh, Oakland, so also the Bay Area continues to be part of my life, sort of interestingly. Yeah. Um, how, how do you think about the future? In general? In general. Well, the last part of my story maybe informs that, which is like, after I wrote Amateur, and then that came out in 2018, uh, no, before it came out, but like in 2018, I got a call from uh, Lauren Morelli, who I was friends with, like she was my, uh, she wrote a, an essay for me at Mike about um, coming out on March, the set of March is the New Black, and we are both from Pittsburgh and we actually go way back, which is sort of like a random thing. So we, she like got into television writing, you know, a few years ago. Um, and she was married to a guy I went to college with. So like we were sort of in each other's lives. And, and I'd always told all these people from Emerson who had, well, she wasn't from Emerson, but she was part of that circle. That if there was ever a, a TV writing opportunity that they thought of me for, it could give me a call. And like, who says that? And then hasn't even called them. But, but she called me because, <laughs> because of the perfect thing. It was like Tales of the City was being adapted. Um, and I loved Tales of the City. I like, loved those books. I read them in high school. My mom and I read them together. And then I read them again in San Francisco. And so the literary adaptation. Um, so she called me and asked if I wanted to, to write for that. Uh, and so I did. And so in 2018, Literally the month before I went, got married, I moved to LA for a few months and uh, had to meet my wife in Guatemala for our wedding. And then <laughs> go back to LA <laughs> um, and worked on Tales of the City, and then um, and then the book came out, and then I you know done a lot of other writing, and then um, and then uh, I went back to LA this year to work on the new Elward reboot um, that had been like you know. It's been really interesting and cool to like kind of keep expanding formats, and now I'm working in film and TV, which also goes back to like my early days of uh, being interested in film. And, um, so I think I don't know what do I think about the future. It's been I've been thinking a lot about the stories we tell. I mean, I, that's like kind of always been my interest. Is like if we can if we can keep creating nuance and, and points of connection in the stories we tell about who we are. I still think that's the most 
potent way to, to, to keep expanding, you know, our own sense of humanity and also expanding, like, who gets contained. In, I mean, everyone should be in the circle of humanity. And until everyone is, like, even people that we don't like, <laughs> I think that we are um, failing to do our jobs as human beings. So I think I'm glad I've found, personally, I found a place where that feels possible, which is, like, these different narrative formats. And I feel excited about watching that and being in this Forrest Gump way now in television and, you know, and, like, before digital media and before that in regular media, I just, I have seen that happen in, in, in our lifetimes, in my lifetime, in a really um, powerful way, even though there's still so much to be done in so many ways that, that that's not been successful or failed, like, the actual people, like, in the mar- from marginalized communities that really need support and resources, like, I don't think it's, a, it's some sort of, like, cure-all for everything, but I do think that there's, a lot has changed, you know, like, in a tangible way, um, and, and I think that, for me, what I can do is what I'm doing, and I feel happy to be part of that, and I feel really worried about, um, our futures collectively, <laughs> uh, in like a you know environmental way for sure. Like I feel scared, and I also think, you know, the like reality of being, you know, uh, what literally the medical community calls a pioneer uh, is not is not great. <laughs> like it's not awesome to be. In, in some ways, it's super interesting and cool, and I'm like, wow, what an interesting vantage point to be living this life I have on Earth, you know, um, from, but the reality of being on the cutting edge of a medical field and not having, like, I don't know how long I'm going to live. I don't know what weird thing could happen to me that no doctor knows of yet because there aren't any studies to, like, confirm it. I don't know what's going to happen. Obviously, politically, you know, for my well-being, I don't know what that will mean, you know, for me, and I also don't know what it will mean for the people coming up behind me. Um, And I feel like, I just feel like this whole time I've been out as a trans person, we have been at a crossroads, and I don't think we've really picked, it's like, it sort of feels like we've almost like, instead of culturally picked a direction or not, we've just split. (laughs) Um, And I don't know what that means, like I don't know what's going to happen, you know? Um, So in some ways I think, I don't know, like I had a, a guy I knew vaguely who died recently, a trans guy I knew who died recently, and like, I think by suicide, I'm not sure, it wasn't made public, but um, but he had been dating the same woman who, um, like, dated this other guy who lost his girlfriend who was trans to suicide recently, and i just been thinking a lot about, like, that epidemic in, 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 in this community and why, I guess, like, the... It's just profoundly sad to me that there's still so many trans people, even in New York, even in, like, the most um, theoretically, you know, accepting environment with the most amount of resources that people don't feel like they can survive. So, obviously, there's a big disconnect. And, I'm, you know, and people, trans women being murdered all the time and all of that, like, when I think, I, I don't know if you mean the future for everyone or not, but I think when I think about the future for trans people, I'm not, I'm not, um, I don't know, we can't by ourselves change everything, you know? Like, we really need other people, and that's why I'm so interested in narratives. But I'm also, like, really fucking bummed that, like, 
we're still in like kind of the same position we were in eight years ago <laughs> when I was first thinking about all this when it comes to that kind of thing like when it comes to like people wanting to stay alive or feeling like there's something to live for that there's still so many people where that's not true I'm really worried about that um, and I'm, I'm really worried about that because I think it's not for lack of effort from all the trans people who are trying to make the world better. It's for lack of effort for the people who are willfully not wanting to like connect with their own humanity and understand, you know, where we have these collective points of connection. The, the decision to like to not do that is just such a sad thing to me. And I think that I don't know. I'm like in a period of my life where I'm like, will that change? Or will people transcend that or will this just be like will we have to figure something else out or will they transcend it when I'm like 70 or if I live that long you know or after I die like will this be something that maybe changes not in my lifetime maybe it's just because I'm getting a little older but that really bums me out <laughs> you know and and I feel a lot of fear for like younger people um, though I also do feel a lot of excitement around younger people too so I don't know I felt like a pretty maybe I'm like everyone I just don't I think that we're really at a crossroads and really need to like change as a culture. And I, I'm personally doing my best and I know a lot of other people who are, but it's not enough without, we got to turn a whole ship, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I think it's like still TBD, you know, like what's going to really happen here. Uh, but I don't know. I'm hoping for the best. <laughs> well, I, I want to be sensitive to your time. Mm. I know we have a bit of a timeline. Um, uh, Maybe going from there, we'll just end on uh, another note of like, where, where does love exist in your life right now? Yeah. Well, a lot of places. I mean, I think things things really did turn around for me after I kind of renegotiated my own relationship to masculinity and gender, and like went through that whole experience with boxing because um, because I kind of learned to take up space again in a in a more honest way. I learned how to be a feminist again in a way that worked for me in, in this body, which I wasn't totally. I mean, I, I was always a feminist, but I wasn't sure how to sh- sort of be that. So, so I had to relearn that, um, by which I mean, like, you know, the things that worked for me before were then becoming, like, problems for me. Like, being really assertive, for example, like, wasn't working in this body, so I had to learn, like, you know, how to, like, listen and be quiet and do all these things that, like, literally were the opposite of what I was trying to do for a long time. So, it was just a huge, a huge change, and, and, and in that, I have, like, recalibrated like we you know come out the other side and, and found all kinds of community again and like and I think the biggest place that that's been true is like I kind of feel like the world is my home you know like um, I've lived a lot of places I really like write you know I write in an internal space but I also really write to be read or to communicate to people and I love hearing from people and like being in conversation and, and I've been really lucky the last few years to like I, I guess in terms of finding love, like, on a, as a person in the world, I spend my time literally going from, like, things like this to other things like this, like, communicating and talking to people who are, like, 
interesting and interested in, in things that I care about too. And um, and so in, in that sense, like in a public-facing sense, I have really found like found a way to to keep my dignity and to to have a lot of integrity and to move through the world in a way I'm comfortable with and that feels right to me, gender-wise and otherwise, and also to, to find like-minded people and to create like, a really big community of like-minded people and to try to keep expanding that, you know? Even to people who don't even know they, they want to be like-minded, but like if they, <laughs> if they give me five minutes, I promise I can make them that way. And so that's been really cool. And, you know, I obviously have like my wife, I have my immediate family, my siblings, my many nephews, I have five nephews, um, at, least, yeah, five ne- at least currently, you know, I mean, who knows what will end up eventually, but it's interesting because they're all, you know, assigned male at birth, um, only assigned male at birth kids in my life, which has been a very interesting thing for me to, um, to think about being like, I'm an older male in the lives of all of these younger guys, like younger kids, and so I'm, a, you know, a potential role model, um, and I find, I find a lot of value in that. Uh, in caring for other people, um, you know, in my family and otherwise, and then, um, you know, obviously all my friends, like my broader queer community, which I was able to, a, a lot actually through um, the work I've been doing the last few years, like reconnect to queer community kind of from a different perspective, but uh, without losing all of the years I spent in community before this, but like kind of understanding myself and I think being able to communicate, I am part of this community and I was part of it in this one way, and that way was genuine, and now I'm a part of it in a new way. And how can how can that work? You know, and, and so we finding that out um, has been at first was really hard, but now it feels like a cool, like I don't know. It's like a, it's it's cool to get to to live twice in that way. Um, and um, yeah, and I think like this might sound trite, but like I have take I, there's a lot of value for me in like my online life like I think I am lucky that people talk like reach out to me a lot online and the things they say are really moving like I I I'm obviously dealing with a lot of like trolls and that sort of thing too but I don't know that whatever like I, I'm I don't really care about that like I'm really impressed with the amount of like um you know like DMs I get or emails with contacts from my website or whatever from just like just thoughtful people who want to say nice things to me um and it makes me feel like what I'm, what I'm doing, what I care about, I have, I have an effect, you know, and that's cool. And then I also have been able to meet so many other really amazing people um, through those same mediums and formats, and through all of the like events I've been doing and, and all that. So I don't know. It's like I, I feel like I, uh, I'm finding love in all kinds of places, often surprising places like the boxing <laughs> Um but it's because I like. I did have to kind of recalibrate and learn again how to look for it, you know, and to, I guess, reckon with the places where it wasn't. But it really did, um, once that was possible and I could kind of grieve that, I think it really opened me up to, like, all these new places, all these new ways. And people are incredibly resilient and adaptive. And there's so many, I don't know, there's just so much surprising things about being a person. So that's really cool. That was a thesis I had, and it turned out, like, it, my thesis was that there was possibility beyond, you know, like, even what I understood in terms of what was about connecting with people or around being a person in the world, um, and that I could bring my whole past with me and still somehow find a way to to live this life and to 
to have genuine connection with people, and I actually, for a few years, wasn't sure that was actually true, and now I feel like it is. So that was really great. Well, thank you so much. Of course, yeah. This is really, I hope it's hopeful. Uh, yeah. I feel, I feel the hope. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs>